Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 336th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Adam Holt. Adam is a principal with Ruben Goldman and Associates and founder and CEO of AssetMap, a financial planning tool that helps financial advisors create a visual representation of their client's financial situation, now reaching over 1.25 million clients. What's unique about Adam, though, is how he combined his early career training in geographic information systems to make land use decisions using maps, and knew his work as a financial advisor sitting across from ultra high net worth clients, to begin to create mind maps to visually capture for himself all the details of their very complex client situations, which then became so popular with his clients and then other advisors in his firm that he eventually turned it into the advisor software company AssetMap to help advisors create their own visual representations of their client's financial situation. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, while working with ultra-high net worth clients, Adam began to draw his own financial maps to help him better visualize his client's complex financial situations on one page, and then discovered that showing the financial planning maps to his clients, they became better engaged in the financial planning process. Why Adam structures his asset maps to concentrate on five components, important people in the household, income sources, assets, liabilities, and insurance policies, to illustrate a holistic picture of his clients' financial journeys, and how Adam designed his asset maps to be used as tear sheets instead of serving as a one-page financial plan, because the goal is not to conduct a complex analysis, but instead simply to provide clients with a quick and easy-to-understand visualization of the topic to facilitate a complex conversation instead. We also talk about how Adam almost didn't land his first job with Equitable because he didn't do well on his insurance exams and only lucked into the job because of a newly hired manager that happened to need one more insurance producer to meet his own numbers. How in the early stages of his career, Adam wanted to work with business owners and found that by asking people he knew to help connect him with business owners, instead of asking for a referral, he ended up gaining referrals more genuinely and consistently. And how after getting his initial version of Asset Map approved by the compliance department of his firm, Adam tripled his production each year for three years, which caught the attention of other advisors in the firm, eventually leading Asset Map to be incorporated into their financial planning process for 1,600 clients, and then eventually become the standalone software company it is today. And be certain to listen to the end, where Adam shares how he didn't initially think AssetMap would grow beyond his practice, but found that having mentors and hiring the right people for the right roles helped support his journey and get him to where he is today. Why Adam encourages advisors looking to launch their own fintech companies to pursue their ideas as long as it's innovative and they feel like can solve a real problem, but still have a realistic understanding of the amount of sacrifices and lifestyle changes and support that's needed to really build an advisor software business. And why Adam believes the key to success for younger, newer advisors is being committed to continually learning from the industry and to acquire their CFP marks, not for the credential itself, but so they can gain the knowledge to become credible educators that attract and serve future clients. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Adam Holt. Welcome, Adam Holt, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. I'm really excited about today's episode and 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 getting to nerd out on the sort of the the emerging topic, the emerging, I guess, well, tech category of 
of this thing that we're starting to all call advice engagement. And and I feel like I owe you a particular shout out for this. Like, you know, we we put advice engagement onto the the advisor tech map um uh, uh last year for just this like emerging category of of tech solutions that uh that just that, that help advisors with the ongoing part. Like we got financial planning software that does the upfront plan, but then there's this like well, what do we do with clients for like the next 29 years of 30 year engagement after the first year? Cause like rerunning an entire financial plan is kind of challenging. Uh, yeah. and, and so it's like, well, what else do you do? And there are all these tech solutions that were starting to crop up that help engage clients in ongoing conversations about advice. Sometimes in that in- initial meeting, often it's in the ongoing meetings. Like we needed a label for it. And I was really struggling with labels and coming up with, frankly, what I think were probably not, not the most ideal uh, labels trying to trying to describe it. And and you had actually sent me an email that said, like, have you ever thought about just calling it advice engagement? I was like, that's a really good label for it. So we, we put it on the map. It's, it's now, uh, uh, it's now held very well. But I, I, I feel like I, I, I owe you like a, a shout out here to recognize like we didn't, you know, I think we've done a lot to help get that advice engagement label out there, but I had some lousy label, like advice support that nobody really knew what that meant. Like <laughs> I was cringing. I have, to, I have to give you full credit that you were like, dude, just call it advice engagement. I was like, he's right. So, uh, so we put it on the map sort of, sort of literally and, and, um, and, and off it's taken of a life of its own over the past, over the past year. Uh, but I know you have a cool history to this of not not only building and as we now call like an advice engagement tool. You're you're founder of of Asset Map that I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners use already. Uh, but I know that you also have a cool journey because you you started out on the on the advisor side of the business. You you lived mm-hmm. advisory firm for a long time before sure. uh, before going out to build a technology company, which which is I find true for a lot of our industry tech companies. There's a lot of tech that's actually like advisor has problem can't find solution throws hands up in the air and makes solution friends hear yeah. about solution start selling solution to friends and now has a software company on the side totally. that if it goes well becomes the main thing so i I'm, i guess I, I just i'm looking for both talking about like evolution of advice engagement and the rise of this sort of software category and tools that are getting created but also yes your journey of how you start out as a financial advisor and and end out 20 odd years later, like raising millions of dollars to build a tech company for advisors. Yeah. Like that's, that's quite a, quite a personal evolution and journey. No question. Well, first of all, that, yes, thank you, first of all. And I think from all of us that have now put ourselves in the advice engagement category, I want to thank you because you've been really great about keeping the lines open with the community and being open to ideas so that we very much feel like it's a, it's a greater community movement to try to better understand our our industry, fintech, everything. And so I, I applaud you and your team in doing that. I think you're doing a fantastic job and service. Regarding the, gosh, evolution into a fintech CEO, what was I thinking? I so you, many- what, what were you thinking? It's I, like, I, I know like you, you have an MBA. I've always joked like it's- it, it's always funny to me when people get MBAs. Like, if you were really studying in school, you would know that entrepreneurship is like a terrible idea with a horrible <laughs> expected economic outcome. Like, why would you do that to yourself? I don't know. Well, twenty years ago, you're definitely right. Um, I, everybody's an entrepreneur today. Everybody's a CEO. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, it's interesting. Gosh, that's a. I don't know how much time do you have for this podcast. Yeah. Just kidding. Just kidding. 
I guess just I I am really curious to hear this this journey of just like how did it start that you landed in financial services and I guess ultimately like how did you how did you get to the point that you're you're building this technology company and 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 it starts taking over your your world but I guess just take us back to the start like how did you get started in the in the industry in the first place Oh my gosh okay so I think like most of us who are now in their 40s, 50s, I'm just pushing 50 just so you know, give an idea. I've been 25 years in the business now. So earliest, I started in 1998. I was two years out of college. I literally went to a job fair because I was working for the Global Change Research Program. And I was working with computers. I had studied environmental sciences plus economics because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And I did this, I, I say this because it, it does come back. I, I did this remote sensing satellite imagery certificate when I went to college. And I was really intrigued by how we're making land use decisions with maps. Okay, now how does that have anything to do with finances? Well, it didn't back then, but it was what was called geographic information systems, the precursor to what now everybody calls Google Maps, basically looking at the world spatially and data spatially. You can imagine how this kind of parlays into asset map. Uh-huh, I wound uh-huh. up basically realizing I actually did not want to work behind a computer. And so I went to a job fair looking for a job that would get me in front of people. And lo and behold, I wound up interviewing with several financial services companies. I wound up working for Equitable in Philadelphia. Okay. I had no background in finance. I think I was a we joked that I was like the sacrifice hire. I I did not really do well on my insurance exams to show that I was going to be a good insurance uh, insurance producer. And yet, that was the kind of hallmark of the of the firm that was hiring into a developing field force. And I loved the people and it resonated with me and I decided to go for it. So, I think like many of us who who find ourselves in the business I was just listening actually to a recent podcast you did, and the gentleman said he he came in via <laughs> the same way, uh, found a job, and it kind of stuck with me. I've been there like twenty five years, so yeah, I I almost landed there, but I I I like I I couldn't even get as far as you did. I failed the screening test for the local AXA office here in the in the DC area. <laughs> they basically they had like a. They had assessment that basically determined like I was not very tra- some of the effect I was not very trainable and a little like just a little bit too free free thinking which I guess in yeah. retrospect I actually have to give them credit that was, that was probably a good assessment. Compl- oh my, that's hilarious! We so, have that in common. Yeah, we, yeah. They, they, so uh, they they screened they screened me out. It was funny because I don't even, take it personally, they were right. <laughs> no, I, yeah. Look, I, I there's there's lots of jokes about me coming into the first interview, coming from working for the federal government, and I came in in my three piece wool suit in the middle of the summer of June, and you know I didn't I had one one suit that I had bought at uh, at TJ mm-hmm. Maxx. You know I yeah. was we were, we were relatively you know we'll call it modest family and wore my grandfather's watch. I thought that's what people wanted for finance, and I went to the job. And after four interviews, like you like you kind of alluded to. They uh, they were going to pass on me, except the guy who was starting, who had started as a manager the day before I interviewed, he needed a guy because he was brand new. They gave me to him. They said, okay, you figure it out. And they passed me over to putting me with an established group. And it's a joke that I have now with the president of the organization because he always jokes that he passed me over. And I wound up obviously making a pretty big contribution to the organization eventually. But it, it's really an interesting point, Michael, because some of the best advisors and most innovative thinkers 
really got into the business as kind of default or by accident. And yeah. I think it's really interesting because it showed a trend. Most of the advisors I know are really an entrepreneurial, trying to change what's going on. How can I evolve? How can I contribute, leave my mark? And I know most of the advisors that have been really successful, at least in my circles, have really have really reinvented and created something, I think, um, in their own space they could be able to be proud of. And that takes a mindset of entrepreneurship, not necessarily following status quo. So, so what was the job that you landed in? Like, cause I just, I know I, a lot of insurance hiring at that time was like, it was all individual solo producer, go honey, what you kill kind of environment. Yeah. But it sounds like yours was, a, was it a little bit different that you're, you're actually coming in like onto a team to support another advisor? No, I, I started like everybody else, a, okay. you know, solo advisor, um, go to your natural market, right? Print your 100 list or whatever it was called. Yep. Uh, I had like 20 people on my list because we we were transplants to Philadelphia from New York City. And I was a, I have a single mom. She basically brought us here. We didn't have a network. Philadelphia is a very, we'll call it, um, I don't want to say it, community-based, uh, you know, city. That yeah. people know, everyone knows each other or you don't know anybody. And yeah. And because you grew up here, you live here, you stay here. And we didn't have that. And I didn't have a natural market. My mom didn't, I didn't have like, you know, dad's country club situation. Yeah. So all the peers that I had were really just, you know, they were light years ahead of me in terms of access. I had to find a way, Michael, to really resonate. I was 24, 25. I, the, the only way I could basically compete, I thought was education. So I went and I sat for my CFP as soon as I could. I did my mm. CHSC. I remember, I don't even remember there was a certified senior advisor that had popped up there for a couple of years that was really working with uh, elder issues and long-term care. I did that one. I got yeah. my MBA back in 2002. So I was just convinced I had to be the smartest guy in the room because I just didn't have any natural ability to, you know, rank it rain. So, uh, and there were, there were definitely, I think, I think the joke in the, in the company was I made 11,000 bucks my first year. That was what I made. And I was living at home. My mom was making me pay rent and I had to figure it out. Uh, and I actually discovered financial planning and even in my second year. And so I started doing full financial planning for people for free. And as a result, you can imagine what happened. Uh, it was the most amazing credibility building and process driven yep sales enablement. And yeah, guess what happened? I earned the business because I earned the trust. And, and by my second year, I think I was number two in developing because people, you know, did what they, they took action with me. Uh, and that's how we were, you know, remunerated back then. So it, it reminds like, I, I, I feel a lot of the parallels in the, in the journey. I mean, I was similar of, I was, I felt like I was so young in the room cause I started started straight out of college as well that I had a similar like, well, if, if I'm going to be the youngest in the room, like I'm not going to have any credibility on that. So I need something else. So I, I similar, like I decide my credibility is going to be the getting, getting some letters after my name. And frankly, if I'm, if I'm going to compete on that, like I have to get more letters out of my name. Cause it's like, that's right. That's my competitive edge. I can't just have the letters. I have to have more of the letters than, uh, than, than others to do that. And, and I still remember, as I started down that road, um, you know, we started around the same time. So like, mm -hmm. you know, the, this was the heyday of variable universal life insurance. And I yeah. started an insurance agency where like everybody sold universal, variable universal life insurance. The question was who got the, you know, the most premium flow into variable universal life insurance. And sure. then 
I got I got introduced to financial planning from like the one guy in the firm who had a CFP uh, marks and was and was doing that kind of financial planning it was still ultimately financial planning for free because he got paid on the implementation. But like it had a process, it established a relationship, it established trust. And the biggest thing that I just that I remember from it was it didn't always lead to a VUL sale. Like sometimes they actually just needed term insurance. Sometimes they, uh, they we opened a retirement account for them. Sometimes there was an investment rollover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just sort of this realization of like, you know what, finding, like doing a plan and finding out what they need and then just selling them what they need instead of always pitching VUL to everyone, like that just mm-hmm. seems easier <laughs> to find out what they need and sell them that. Like this financial planning thing is kind of neat. Uh, uh, my challenge was I still couldn't find people to get in front of because I didn't have a natural market either. So like, where were where were you finding people mm. to get in front of to get this going? So that's you know that's always a fun story. And to kind of just tack onto what you're saying, nobody ever wanted to be sold, right? They want to be engaged, and then they want to buy from you if they're engaged. I mean, that's the whole point of advice engagement, right? Advice in many ways is. I tend to say, instead of saying financial planning anymore, I tend to say advice. I tend to say guidance because I, unfortunately, we can talk about this. I think financial planning is just getting put in a box and it, and I think the definition of which is basically being designed actually by the tech companies, not by the actual process. And I think you're doing a fantastic job championing financial planning, but I think, I think the vernacular has changed. So when I, when I tend to think of using advice as an engagement tool to ultimately get people to take better action. What I, that was a very, I will call it aspirational view back then, right? Because yeah, at the end of the yeah. day, we were still compensated from the placement. And there was no doubt we had quotas and we had expectations to move uh, the manufactured product. Yep. Although I would say back then, even the organization that I'm still affiliated with today uh, called Carbarth in Philadelphia was one of the top agencies, if not the top at Equitable and AXA for many years, in fact, still today. They always had a very, I would say, um, evolved view that you used, you gave it good advice because we want to be here for the next 50, 100 years as a company advice first and the products will actually come. And that's actually what has they proved. For me though, I, I remember actually it was in, a, I was at my year marker. I was head down on financial planning. I was at the point where I was basically going to fail out, Michael. I, I did I couldn't keep up with my expected rents to my mom. I was thinking, all right, I got to get a real job. This is not going to work. And I had spent a lot of time uh, with Tony Robbins and going to his events in my teenage years. And, you know, she kind of- You were going to Tony Robbins events in your teenage years? Yeah, that's a whole nother story. My mom dragged me there actually when I was 16 and 17 and I totally got hooked on self-development and pushing myself and it totally changed my my view. But the reason I I mention it is because- um, because there was a principle of asking for help. And so when my natural market was basically a drought, I said, gosh, you know what I really need to do? I need to ask for help. Because as you know, most of us are good people. And when someone who you care about or know asks you for help, you you tend to listen as opposed to going and ask them for referrals, right? Um, and so I asked uh, someone I knew who knew a lot of people in Philadelphia. I said, would you have lunch with me? I couldn't barely afford it, Michael. It was <laughs> when she wanted to picking a sushi place. Um, 
Oh, uh, something cheaper. Yeah, she did. Well, she took advantage of me. (laughs) But anyway, I I got it. She paid it back in spades because she said, what's up? And I said, listen, I really need your help. What, how can I help you? She said, I said, well, I came up with this idea. I want to work with business owners. And this is, you know, I'm starting this new project. I really approached it from an entrepreneurial standpoint, but I really need to speak to other business owners so that, that I can explore and show this problem set that I have. And I was really going after benefits and using, trying to go after corporate. And I don't know, I'd gotten convinced early in the day that that was a, that could be an interesting marketplace because business owners, as we know, have every single problem there is personal and business oriented that we yeah. can solve. So that seemed like a great market. And she said, I'll tell you what, I don't have any money myself, but she took out a napkin. She wrote down four names. She said, call these people. I called O4, as you can imagine. Two already were like, no. One said, uh, two said they would meet with me. One blew me off and the other one actually was agreed to have lunch with me. So I had to buy lunch again. Uh, uh. And at the end of this conversation, you'll see where this goes because it's very relatable. Uh, I said, listen, I'm, I'm in this space of doing, this is what I'm doing. She says, listen, my sister and my best friend are my two financial advisors. I was like, okay, so I'm not going to get anywhere here. Uh-huh. And I asked her as we were walking out and she was a very nice to meet you. Really kind. Thanks for lunch. Blah, 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 blah. I was 25, 26. I asked her, I said, has anybody actually done a financial plan for you? Have you ever, have, you said you're going to retire by 55. Have you modeled this out? And she says to me, surprisingly, what? No, no my, my advisor's never done that for me before. My advisor, my sister, and my best friend have never modeled my retirement. I, I clearly have no view as to what's going on. And I'll tell you what, you know what I'll do? And I'm like, I say it like a, not a young Jewish kid from New York, you know, like I'll do this. I'll, I'm happy to do it. I'll do this financial plan for you. And uh, she said, that'd be great. And I did it for her. And guess what I uncovered? Major gaps. Her best friend and her sister were leaving her in serious tax problems basically on the structure because they weren't talking to each other as you can, you know, play it forward. What happened? She wound up referring me to one person. I thought that she would open up the whole world, but that one person referred me to one person. And I literally did this chain of financial planning and then earning the business. And I wound up having this unbelievable year. So I know it was a long story, but the key to that and the, the remembrance is all of us can get to a moment where we can ask for help. And sometimes don't be surprised as you keep giving that that comes back to you. And so I learned that. And then I just kept on that path, Michael. I literally, I probably only worked with five to 10 new households a year, but because I was doing planning, I was, I was gathering a significant amount of problem solving, especially in those early ages. So I'm, I'm, I'm struck by that as well. I guess this, I'm wondering how, how, how literal this language was for you that, I mean, to me, ultimately what you're describing is like, you know, I, I found someone who gave me a referral and then my referral gave me my referral and a referral gave me a referral. And like you, you start going down the road, the, the referral train, which is right. you know, how a lot of us like just try to build that, that network. But I'm struck, I guess, just from a language end, like, as you said, like you didn't go asking for referrals, you went asking for help. I mean, is that yeah. literally like the language that you, you yeah. didn't, re- you didn't reach out to say, I'd like to ask for referrals. You just reach out and say like, I'd like to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, yeah. Well, here's yeah. what I'm trying to do. Like what should I what should I do to make this work? And, Michael, if I, if and her I, solution I, I, was, oh well, let me give you some names. No, yeah, I, well, be, because here's the thing: the, the the story around the referral script that we were all taught was, I get paid by referrals. Okay, that sounds really freaky. Well, I get paid two ways. The first, you'll get paid, that's the right. With my product, you're right. Second, <laughs> it's the introduction you give me to your friends. And Thanks friends. for bringing back this horror story. <laughs> I think 
it is actually explicit. The the request for help is psychologically sound mm-hmm. and works in a community of trust, right? So uh, I think when you're specific about who you can help with your services and so forth, and you're and you're asking for that. I mean, there's no question. There was a there was a modicum of desperation for me at that time. <laughs> if I didn't get help, I'm out of the business. Yeah. So there was a bit of urgency. I don't know if every advisor or advisor, as you would say, is in yeah. that position um, to maybe say this this is this is critical. But there is um I think there is a way to communicate to people who yeah. care about your well, success. Yeah, that can be satisfied because you can be very specific, Michael. If I asked you right now and said, "Listen, Michael, I have I have decided to really focus my business on delivering significant value to this niche market, and this is how I've done it. I've invested an extraordinary amount of money in people and technology to deliver this. I'm really excited about it, and as a result, I'm actually letting go a third of my client base that doesn't really match with me. But that's where I really need your help." And I thought I would I would share that with you because I'm really excited about it. And you might know people that would appreciate that. And so you see what I just did? I I converted it into the referral conversation, but I led with that. And I think that's I think that's why if they're sincere, it comes across. But it it almost reminds me like I I live a I live a portion of my of my days in in supporting some of the nonprofit world in the the DC theater community. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, there there there's a saying in um in the nonprofit world, like when you're trying to build and expand bo- boards in your and your base, uh, if if you want their money, ask for help, and if mm. you want their help, ask for money. Uh, mm. be because you know if 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 you ask for money and they don't have dollars to give, they'll say like, well, let me let me let me at least give you some some help, some non financial help. Sure. Uh, and and if you if you know they've got dollars, you don't ask for the dollars, you ask for their help because they won't have time for help. And then to assuage their guilt, they'll be like, I'm sorry, I really can't help you. I don't have the capacity. They'll be like, let me, let me write you a check. So so if you want their mo- if you want their money, you ask for help. And if you want their help, you ask for money. That's uh, a great takeaway. I'm gonna use uh, that. And so like it's, I'm like I'm hearing a version of that here, which is like, if I want your referral, like if I want your referrals, I ask you, I ask for your for your help. Uh because because you'll give me that instead, like I well, I can't I can't do any business with you because I don't fit your your situation. But but let me give you some names of someone that I know. Like I I right I have to I have to assuage my guilt. I'm like oh you're asking me for help in an area that isn't actually my thing, and I don't really know how to help you. Like let me let me give you some names of people who could. Yeah, Which but like, t- that's I mean, exactly where you ended out at the end of the sushi dinner. I agree. I agree. And and the, the tit for tat is not necessarily an expectation. I, I tend yeah. to approach all of these on a give first. So I tend to, I, I hope that I espouse this idea that I'm I'm always giving. Like I call people and say, how can I help you? Th- these are people that get to know. And I, so I want you know anybody hearing this to say, this is just, hey, go ask some people for help. Like, you know, the reality is, is that that sincerity falls through. You've got to have a persona that I think is a giving one so that when you ask for help, it's not, they have to actually believe like you mean it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll think of some people I'm like, no, but being specific is really critical. And that's, that is one thing we have learned from that kind of sales cycle of, of being specific of asking for you know people who meet this specific criteria, not just being generic because then you know how it is. Right, you know right. a thousand people. I can't think of anybody. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you know, do you know anybody who might want financial advice? Well, I don't know because it's really yeah. like I don't know who wants what. I don't know if you're good at it. I don't know if you're the right fit. I don't want to embarrass oh. myself. It's like I, I say I can't think of anyone with all the people I know. But when you say like, 
hey, I'm building out with 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 business owners and I really want to help them with their employee benefits and all these other things. So like I'm trying to figure out how to serve business owners better and and what I can, you know, what I can do for them that's most useful. Like and I just need your help. Like, do you know, like, what do you think about this and what should I be doing? Or, and maybe you can even ask who should I be talking to? Like, when you get that specific, people are like, well, I start thinking of actual business owners that I know. And all yeah. of a sudden, like some names, some names That's come right. to mind. And because you're asking for help, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not sending the names to you to sell them something. Cause then that can blow back to me. Like, Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sent. I'm giving your. I'm giving their name to help you, which means all that's going to come back to them is apparently. I think so much of them that they're my go-to when someone needs help. So like they got flattered. Yeah. They'll. They'll. They should be happy. I gave the name because it just totally. it changed the context when you're asking for help instead of asking for referrals. Well, I, and look, here's the thing that I did become, I think, reasonably good at in the sales process. As not supposedly supposed to be a good salesperson, I learned very clearly to sell the problem, not the solution. I mean, in many ways, this is what financial planning is in the sales enablement community, okay? Those that are still you know, leading with product predominantly, they're using planning as an enablement or some version of planning needs analysis as a, a sales uh, enablement tool. But the reality is, is that you, you're constantly selling the problem. I mean, look, if I asked you right now, Michael, if you think about it right now, how organized will your survivor be to knowing where all your financial stuff is? Can you imagine what that process, have you ever gone through that with a family member? Have you ever lost a family member where you just don't know where your stuff is? Mm-hmm. Gosh, I have so many stories personally, I mean, in, I mean intimately, yeah. of having to go through estates in the family, as well as just horror stories of lost assets of just emotional mess associated with, what if we could just get you a map? Here's where everything's buried, a treasure map for the household. Can you see how that would be valuable? Great. Who do you think needs that? Now, I don't know if you heard what I just did, but selling the challenge that we all have just living in this day of life is really the core of getting people to take action and recognize that the service that you deliver is actually a benefit. This is not about me trying to sell you, you know, getting you to sell my friend and connect you because they need financial advice. Everybody needs some level of financial guidance. But the problem is, can you sell the problem and recognize that other people have this? And you know what? I would love for you to help them solve that. I think that's that's the difference. So so you have like you start down this asking for help route as you're discovering financial planning. Mm-hmm. It creates these windows where if I can just get some in front of someone. You know, nobody's perfect with their finances. So if I can do a fi- comprehensive financial plan for someone, I'm pretty certain I'm going to find something that they need. Mm-hmm. As you got more specific in who you're going after, the like the referral train chain starts to link, and people yeah. get you to the next person, and, and business starts flowing. So like, so what what happens next on the journey? Like, just uh, that just keeps amplifying for a while. What what was the no, next? What's I the next a, stage? You're right. I did have a. I had a moment. So in 2000, I had created some credibility as a, you know, the, you know, the young kid that is surprising people. And I had a very empathetic approach. I was not very aggressive. You know, obviously that was kind of evident in my early uh-huh. testing, like you. Uh, I wanted, you know, I was a nerd, like I wanted to, you know, brainiac everything. I literally spent all my time, I don't know if you remember back then, attorneys, accountants, real estate investors would have lunches 
to try to entice people to come do business with them. And of course, I didn't have much money. So I would I signed up for every one of these things. And I was just picking up knowledge on 1031 exchange and, and trust for special needs. And I was going to everything, right? And I would sit in the back of the room. And if I would you know, start up a conversation with somebody in the back, I'm like, why are you here? And we'd start. And that's how I built my network, literally going and taking, you know, getting lunches from these other professionals. So, like, and so, you're, so you're their plate liquor. Yes, totally. <laughs> I'm totally doing that. Right. I, I'm like, I remember like you, I wanted to get knowledge like crazy. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know where to go. So I was creating this kind of theme of being this, I don't want to say a know-it-all, but like, you know, the young kid who was just, we'll call it a, uh, yep. excited. Yeah. And uh, I got hooked up with the top two advisors in the local branch. They were, you know, superstars nationally. They became my mentors, Andy and Andy, other names, both of them, Andy. They started a firm. It's called Ruben Goldman and Associates. Uh, they had just merged their two practices, very high end estate planning and private equity stuff, like really, really kind of exotic um, and high end to the clients. Stuff I would never see, right? I would never see this level of complexity. They said they were going to start an investment arm because they're just running into so much business. They think they can get to $100 million in the first two years. They said, we need a young guy to run it. Will you do it? And I said, okay. And that was how I started that relationship in 2000. And we that was not the time to start an investment practice. Do you remember Y2K? Oh, yeah. And the tech bubble three months later. Yeah. Um, it was It was, I think after two years of doing that, we had accumulated about $11 million of assets. Because we were trying to come at it from a an SMA account or outsourced TAMP, uh, the fees were like two and a half percent all in, even at high ends values. You know, like three to ten million dollar values of, of AUM. We weren't beating you know the incumbents, and after two years of that, I was just burning out, and I wanted to get back into planning, and I was literally about to leave. I got an offer to go to Credit Suisse and join um, someone who I'd actually met. And sat next to at the first Tony Robbins event, event I went to at age 16. He had become a super successful advisor at, uh, at Credit Suisse. He asked me to come and be his junior. I said, okay, I'm going to come do this. And I'm going to do my MBA at night. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go because I had to get my MBA to go to Credit Suisse. And then literally my mentor came in and said, listen, I, I want to talk to you about something. We think you should get out of the investment business. And I'm thinking, okay, because I'm about to tell you I'm leaving. And he says, we think you could long-term be our successor. Um, we think you should hire somebody to run the investment team here at Ruben Goldman. Offload that. Um, I, one of my buddies had just started a year before, and he started to show real interest in investments. And he literally, he's like, he'll take it over, and you're going to learn the practice of high-end estate planning, and long-term, you could be our successor. So I called up Credit Suisse and said, I'm not coming, <laughs> right? Wow. Because it was an unbelievable accelerator, yeah. 10 years and, probably in my business. And I guess from their perspective, right, they're, they're doing high-end complex work for very high net worth clients in an agency that was uh, just as many, I'm presuming back then, like much mm -hmm. more focused on sales transaction volume, right? I mean, if you go back for a lot of firms that day, you know, the, the, uh, they would have told you you're wasting your time. Like getting your CFP early in your career just takes away from your time to go network and get business. Like that's business oh, yeah. suicide. You don't go get your CFP. Like what? go. You, what do you think an MBA go, was? Yeah, yeah. Go calls, but yeah. but then you've got the one group of advisors who are like, no, we actually have complex clients and have to find someone who knows what the heck they're talking about because 
affluent clients sniff that out really quickly. So the irony, I guess, to me is like you're you're you actually end up being highly differentiated in that in that office for the one you know the one set of advisors that needed someone that could handle complexity. You're like yeah. you're the only one to call. Yeah, that, I think that is the key. And I w- I showed that I could actually do production as a side effect of leading with advice. And that kind of became my mantra, leading with advice all the time and without expectation of any closing or anything. I literally walked into every meeting without rose-colored glasses about this is this person's going to buy you know, a million-dollar annuity. Like I, I just I got retrained to always think about, does this person need help? And then let's go figure out, let's shop. And I think they were they were much more mindful because they were working with such a high-end space right. where typically they're working with the family office or an attorney or an accountant who's going to vet everything we're doing. Right. And so they shopped everything. We were I, I literally think for two years, all I did, I put together, you know, hundred, two hundred million dollar proposal per for life insurance portfolios um, for really, really, you know, public figures and I learned a lot about the insurance world that I had no idea about. It gave me actually a new, a kind of renewed view of like respect for the complexity that this, that you could do instead of just, like you said, typically saying, okay, VUL whole life term. And now I was like, wow, I'm carrying myself a lot differently. So I had the investment side experience of what it was like to start building an AUM. I wound up actually starting to push all the AUM I was getting to my buddy, Greg, Um, And then Greg started expanding. And I mean, he grew that practice over the next 20 some years to well over a billion of AUM, if you included all of our insurance. Uh, So, and I'm glad I kind of stuck in it, but it's wound up being actually kind of a side business. The the asset gathering business was, we were just building so much trust because we had an approach and you can relate to this. Yeah, I think that people resonated with, we, we showed the shopping, we had custom analysis at the wazoo. Um, but it was the precursor to asset map because the challenge that I kept finding as the power planner extraordinaire at the time was there's so much complexity here. I don't think these clients even know what they've got. And so maybe I need to start and go back to my mapping route and just start trying to create a scalable framework. And I did it literally, it was for me. And so I think you fast forward to several years of doing, of basically doing what I just said, kind of supporting the growth of this organization from the technical side. The cool thing about it, and I have hats off to my mentors, is that they they gave me a lot of trust as the young guy in the room to start building processes that they had really no interests in, right? So when you think about technology process, CRM, workflow, all that stuff. I was, man, I was curious about that stuff. So I started, they gave me a little bit of free reign. They said, this is long-term, this is going to be your problem to deal with. So start building the infrastructure that you need. Um, and so they allowed me effectively. The reason I got catapulted in the career is because I was now talking to a different caliber of client. So I, I got access when I didn't have a natural market. I was running in circles. I was learning things at an unbelievable pace. I could talk the game with people twice my age. And I think the exposure and the opportunity to build build a firm with their money was a huge advantage. And and that's, I I can't really stress on how thankful and blessed I was to have that experience. And so relative to ultimately where you ended up with 
with asset map, then it sounds like this the 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 germ of this in the context of of the financial planning world was I'm working with these hyper complex clients who have all this dollars and stuff all mm-hmm. over the place. I can't even keep track of what all it is and where it is. I like I need some way to capture and visualize this in in one place. I needed to sell the problem, Michael. The problem was the problem for very wealthy families was, and you know, they're not as motivated by if they have enough money to cover the bills, right? The retirement distribution analysis was not really of interest to them. Right. Okay. Cause they're, they, they recognize every year they're making distribution decisions or they've got enough cash flow right. that they're not dipping into their investments the way that most, I will call them everybody else is thinking. Right. So their problem was what? It was aggravation around inefficiencies, usually related to tax. Okay. Their biggest aggravation yep. was their tax bill they're paying because they see that and they're writing that check. Okay. Yep. Um, so they're really mindful of that. And structure, which is what's structure? It's asset protection, it's privacy, and it's where is this structure going when I'm not here? And so the estate component of it was, was really more, how do I make a difference? How do I contribute? How do I live a fulfilling life? I've got enough capital. Uh, and then how do I protect it for the next generation? So the, it was interesting how the story really changed how their version of financial planning was. I don't, I don't know. I've right. built so much yeah. complexity in my, I've got 10 different advisors. They gave me, I got all this crap. I don't know what's going on. And by the way, I know I have this awesome vault that my last advisor gave me with the money when Edmund first started the plan, he's also in Philadelphia. So he, I remember when he came to my physical office and pitched on e-money, it's got to be 17 years ago. And I was enamored. I loved it. I was like, this is brilliant. I love this and so forth. And we wound up becoming one of the earlier subscribers as a firm and trying to do fee-based financial planning. It didn't take for us as well, uh, you know, 16, 15 years ago, because our, we felt like we were doing the planning anyway because we needed to with that level of complexity. And so right. I said, gosh, you know what? I need to get this crap together for myself. And that's where the roots of Asset Map was. It, it, was, it wasn't until, Michael, I think 2005, it was 2005, when I was at a meeting actually in your area in DC or Maryland, and I, I came to the meeting, I had my e-money output and my morning star and all the stuff. And I driven two hours to go do the classic, you know, yeah. this, this guy's like, you're going to come down to my house. Cause I haven't seen you and we're going to do it old school. And he saw me writing on my asset map, which I had standardized. It was all made by hand, but it was, it was right. essential for me. And I'm writing all my notes on it. And I'm like, okay, I got to move money from here to here. I got to do this, this. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I've got, uh, this is how I keep myself organized. And he like takes it away from me. And he's looking at it and he sees him, he sees himself and he sees his wife on there and he sees his family members and his trust and his kids and in the boxes. And he's like, okay. Oh, he's like, so he's literally, he's, he's walking me through it. And he's like, you know what you're missing? You're missing this. I, did I not tell you I have this like million over here? No, you didn't tell me that. Okay. So I'm uncovering new stuff. And by the end of the <laughs> he, meeting- he just does it because like, well, if you're going to have a map of me, it's going to be right, darn it. Like you, you can't have a wrong map of me. Like I have to fill in the blanks now. I have to tell you this. <laughs> I have done this thousands of times. There is an obsession with make sure your map is accurate. It's one of the secret sauces of why <laughs> the map was so effective. Uh-huh. Because when you look at a balance sheet, you you kind of miss stuff. Like you you can accept that's not there. But when it's visual and spatial, we learned this from the mapping side, 
It's like, you're missing this house or this property that I have. What is that? Oh, it's a warehouse. It's part of my business. What's it worth? 10 million. 10 million? You forgot to tell me about it. Okay. Well, it's actually owned in trust. Okay. Explain. Now it's in a trust. My Nana left it for me. What's the trust? Oh, the trust got a hundred million. The trust got a hundred million. Like, okay, wait. All right. right. First of all, after this, I need to meet with your accountant. Okay. So, because you've structured it all wrong. When you're, is again, it's it's one of those effects of of moving in very high net worth circles in particular, like just, you know, that their needs are covered. Their needs are often covered by just one of the various pots or pools of money that they're accessing. So just this whole like, you know, like this focus of, well, did I get all the assets to do your retirement projection? Like, yeah, sure. You got enough of my assets to show me that I have enough for retirement. Like not my concern. Like the fact that I didn't tell you about the other hundred million dollar trust wasn't going to impact our, 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 relationship anyways, because you showed me I have enough for retirement with the money you already knew about. So telling you about more doesn't actually matter. No, no, I agree. Ways like just it's, it's, it's different compared to the average clients. I think that a lot of advisors work with are like, no, I have to get every single asset on here because we're just trying to get you up to your, your, your retirement goal. But it, it just, it strikes me Right. I mean, particularly relative to where planning was, I mean, to some extent today, but particularly 20 years ago, as you're talking about this, like, right, it was, it was all problem identification and gap analysis, right? Like planning software is built to show you your life insurance gap, to show you your retirement gap, Mm. to show you your education savings gap. It was all about showing, showing shortfalls because we sold the solution, like 529 plan, insurance, retirement account. Et cetera. And so when problem. Yeah. Right. So like when when you work with really affluent people who have out earned all those problems, like the yeah. financial pl- like just the whole financial planning software tool, I guess like just really starts to fall by the wayside. Cause as you were articulating like all the problems that you're you're illustrating for them, like tax inefficiencies, structure inefficiencies, asset protection, privacy, like flow of very large complex dollar amounts and where they go, like Planning software didn't solve that then. Frankly, it, uh-uh. it's not great at solving that now. No, it didn't. Um, and look, we got used to, I think, yeah. also looking at typical reports, right? They were yeah. a pie chart, a balance sheet, and a, you know, yeah. some policy summary, and then a bunch of cash flow burden. But I, I think here, here's the important part, and everybody, you need to like hear this. The, the funny part about that meeting experience was, and ironically, this family is still a client of our firm today. Um, and we're talking, I guess, now 20 years ago. So he says to me, do me a favor. When next time you come down here, don't you dare bring that pile of paperwork. I want you to just bring this map because when, I'm going to take this from you. Okay. I'll make it, you know, I got a photocopier in the other room. <laughs> I'm going to make a copy of this because you finally give me a way for me to communicate with my wife who just asks me, are we okay? And where's our crap? Okay. And, and she just wants to know that I've been thoughtful about her needs too, because I'm the one handling the finances in the household. And I'm and every time I try to show her my Excel spreadsheet or I go onto the platform for the e-money, she's like, take that out of here. I don't want to see it. So what we realized is that we tend to communicate at this technical professional preeminence level, like the client really wants to know how the food is made. And we're talking usually to the engaged party in the household. And they're like, you know, go ego to ego on whether they know a lot or they don't, you know, and there's a whole bunch of people that are just disengaged. And so the question is, how do you deliver advice and engage them in the process where they're not intimidated? And I just, I had like literally my light, the light went off and I'm like, holy mackerel. And so I spent the next year 
trying to get asset map approved from the compliance team at my firm. Mm -hmm. And in 2006, I got it approved. In 2007, eight and nine, I tripled my personal production each year. And all of a sudden, by the time I was in 2009, I was a very young top producer. And my, and of course now everybody's like, what are you doing? And that's when we started to really say, this is, this is a process. And in 2009, I spent a bunch of my single person money and I started seeding ASIMAP. And that was the idea was to build a process internally that we could use. It was our special sauce because we were gathering all these assets. We're cross-selling like crazy. People are excited. We've shortened the sales cycle down to literally two meetings. And our fee-based financial planning, we're like, gosh, it's easy enough to do this. So we're going to do it for everybody. And all 1,600 clients in the firm eventually got asset map. About 10 of them, 10 to 20 of them got e-money because they really loved it. And they were just, that was, that was the john. And we really were able to just scale. I got down to the point, Michael, where I was probably working literally two days a week um, doing that level of production. And I was... Uh, it was a real eye opener and it gave me all this time back to now invest in the practice. Because the reality is just said, like, you know, the, you can put the asset map together more, more simply not to belittle, but just like, you're just, yeah, no, you you're putting numbers, you're, you're pulling numbers in to show, you know, as you put like what, what all, what all their stuff is and where it is, but you don't have to do the projection part, which is what money got any money and recapital and the rest do. Yeah. And like that, that's the time consuming part, especially if you got really affluent clients. Like that's really complex and time consuming to do the projections, all, all of which we often do to basically show people who already have more than enough to money to meet all their goals that your projection shows they have more than enough money to meet their goals, which is not a, like a lot of time and not actually helpful versus. We just put the asset map in front of them and they see where all their money and stuff is and they're even happier with far less time. I, I'll, I'll make it even simpler for you. The irony behind most financial advice engagement, the pain point of, of all consumers, I've learned it's not just high net worth, okay? Because we've tested this now, what, there's over a million and a quarter people in asset map. I mean, it, we've tested this a little bit, let's call it that over 15 years now. And the interesting problem that people usually come to the table with that's never expressed is, I actually don't know if I'm making the right financial decisions. I have had advisors throughout my life. I'm speaking as if I'm the consumer. They're not. This is the unspoken truth underlying their request for help, usually in the early stages. Several advisors have sold me some stuff, Worked out, didn't work out. Never heard from them, did have, have varying experiences. I don't know if the stuff that's in my financial inventory actually serves me who I am today. It may have been made sense 10 years ago, but I don't know why, because I've inherited half this crap. And ultimately, the employer gave me some stuff. I've got that. I got maybe I got some stock options. My Nana left me something. You know, the clutter is hard to organized, just like the, the cluttered basement, right? It's like all the stuff that's down there. It's like the baby stuff, the stuff I'm going to use. I might actually wear that one day or that tool. Oh, I love that tool. It's not really effective. And I think what the underlying challenge is, is when they come to a financial advisor, they want them to holistically in their best interest, tell them some feedback of, are they okay? Do they have the right stuff? Do they have glaring problems? Do they have to fix stuff? Should we fill in some gaps? And the real benefit, I think, of starting with this fact-finding process is 
Before we get into any analysis, let's just do a financial x-ray and figure out what you got. And now let me educate you based upon what you've got, what we can do better, and where there's probably areas we need attention. Let's start there. The, the idea of coming in and saying this is all about retirement distribution planning is a, I would say, is an artifact of a historical approach to financial planning that I think has taken over the conversation, mostly because the boomers are in this distribution phase, but it's not actually the pain point. And I think, I think we need to kind of zoom out for a degree, to a degree and start saying, let's just figure out what's going on in your life and whether we have done the right diagnosis first. Because there's a lot of disparate stuff, as you know well. It's not just about investments. It's not just about insurance. It's about tax, legal, banking, family structure, generational issues, emotional components, meaning of life we're about to get, to get into. And I don't think that, and I think that, you know, leading with, we'll call it a distribution analysis has been a, is, I think it's immature today, frankly. Interesting. And, and, and so I, well, I'm, I'm struck as well that, I mean, an anchor piece for all of that is just, you said like the clutter is hard to organize. And I mean, for anyone, you know, like, yes, yeah, some very high net worth clients have like some really sort of interesting clutter, right? Like, oh, I forgot mm -hmm. to mention like the $100 million trust from Nana because I hardly get any distributions from it. But, <laughs> uh, Good but I mean, like almost anybody up and down the line, like just, you know, the 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 financial system doesn't exactly sell simplicity. It, it, it sells complexity and more and more and more and add, add, add. And if you like trying things yeah. over time, you end up with a lot of stuff all over the place. It's true. Uh, and I mean, I, I've always been struck because I mean, I, I I remember this from early in my career of like, oh my gosh, if you could just give me all of the data, uh, I could get you organized and do an awesome financial plan for you. Because you know, I was going to nerd out in some awesome financial planning, mm -hmm. and 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 it took me a long time to actually realize that this whole framework of like, if you would just give me the data, I could get you financially organized and and do this plan for you, has like this fundamental flaw to it, which is. If they're really not that organized, it's actually really, really hard for them to give you the data. Uh, that is true. And if they're so organized to give you the data that quickly and readily and easily, they actually are probably pretty clear of where this stuff is and what's going on. And like, ironically, that's actually harder to like show you know show some problems and prove their value because they they tend to actually be in a better place. The 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 clients that need the help the most the first problem they have out of the gate is like they literally aren't organized enough to fulfill your data gathering request. Yeah. And no, but that's, that's true. And then you have to solve for that. And, and, and that just very quickly starts with like, let's just try to diagram out what you have and where the heck it is. Like just, just at that level, like what accounts are there and where are they and where does money move? Yeah. But isn't isn't that okay? So let's let's be honest with ourselves. So even if they're organized, it doesn't mean they've got the right stuff, right? It's true. So so we get. We, hopefully, you're right. We we got to get to that place where we are able to what I call apply our advice intelligence. Right. That's the real AI that matters. Can we apply our advice intelligence in real time to their current situation and whatever it is, whether it's just starting or we're highly developed. Whether we have a lot of complexity, but it's all wrong, because I, I can't tell you how many times. I, there's a great story, actually. This was kind of the eye opener for me. I shared this actually in our boot camps uh, for those advisors who really want to learn the language. Um, and it was a it was it was a pivotal moment for me. And it, the conclusion was, Michael, that everyone needs help. Okay, there was this precursor idea I had in my mind that that wealthy people were all set. 
There was nothing I could do for them. Uh, I'm too young. I'm uh, not smart enough. I don't know enough. They're already working with the top advisors with 30 years experience. And I had, I had access to a family friend who uh, was the CEO, chairman, president of a major financial services company that you would know. And I never thought it was possible I could really work with them. And I figured, you know, we'll just keep the mm -hmm. conversation. We'll call it high level, more relationship, not ever about finances. Okay. It turns out that he had, he was working with the number one advisor in his organization because that was kind of the rite of passage. A CEO got to work with the number one advisor. Uh, you know, I went to their golfing, uh, went golfing with them once. I'm not a big golfer, but I got the opportunity to go golf. It's like a top, top 10 golf uh, place. I was told it, the, the locker next to him was the CEO of JP Morgan. And on the right side was uh, Citibank. And like the network was insane. Okay. So here I'm totally intimidated here. I, I said, you know what? I'm going to use my help strategy, Michael. So I said, I've got this asset map. I created an asset map for a typical, very complex household with real estate and trusts and all kinds of stuff. And I asked him for help. Um, can you imagine what help I asked him for? I said, listen, I'm working on this new project. This was 20, 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and I really think it's helpful to people to help organize their lives. I'm getting this great feedback. Would you give me feedback on it? So it took him six months. I got a meeting with him. It was a breakfast meeting at his house. I had to drive three hours to get there, seven in the morning before his limousine picked him up to take him into the city. I, I get up there. You know, he comes down, he's already he's been up since five. He's already read the, the full Wall Street Journal, cover to cover. He sits down at the kitchen table and I said, he's like, okay, how can I help you? I said, listen, would you give me feedback on this? And I put the map in front of him. Okay. He's looking at it. He's looking. He's like, okay, he's underwhelmed. He's like, what is this? What is this? Guess what happens? His wife comes down and says, oh, hey, what? I know you're here. Yes, I'm here. They were in their seventies, by the way, at this point. She, she looks at the map. She rips it out of his hands. She's looking at it. She's like, what is this? I, I said, well, this is this map visualization I create for my households. I'm getting your husband's feedback on it. What do you think? She looks at him. She says, do we have this? And he says, no, I got my Excel and I've got this and I've got all those documents. You know, I've got this whole packet for you. And she still looks at me and she says, Adam, can you make this for me? <laughs> I was like, I was like uh, I'm looking at him. His face is kind of awry because he know now he has to actually get organized, right? Uh, yeah. And and I'm like, uh, sure, I'd be happy to do it for you. It took me like two months to get it out of him. When I came back and showed them the map, it was an absolute travesty. Absolute. Like if I told you that he had an annuity that he had been holding for 20 years at 3% for 20 years. He had the he had a one-star mutual fund with over a million bucks in it. All of his stock was still in cert form from 2000 and two, Y2K, uh -huh. if you remember that. Still yeah. sitting in the bank vault. Uh -huh. Nobody had actually yeah. managed it. Stock certs, yep. Mm -hmm. He had all his real estate owned personally, a mega estate tax problem. All his life insurance was owned personally. I was like, can I fix this? And it wound up becoming one of the biggest cases I had ever worked on. It took me a year to fix it, but you can, that opened my eyes. Once I was, once I was like, okay, wait a minute. Now everybody has inefficiency and I can mm -hmm. uncover it by just having an open conversation of why did you choose to do this? Does it serve you? Is it haphazard? Is it intentional? I, I was able to release myself of ever having to really lead with the analysis. I never had to sell 
this is why it doesn't work in the distribution. This is why you have an estate tax problem. I could see structurally, like this is this, there's efficiencies we can gather here. And so I I that's when I called myself a recovering financial planner. I went from being a math like savant, like I loved it. I think like you, I was I'm an Excel junkie, okay? But I was like, oh my gosh, that's not what people really want. They want to, they want to, they want to know where the broken bone is and can I fix it? And, and that's when I just, I, like, I literally had a transition and that enabled me to, I was like, I had no fear. I would go to, I would go to every household that I ever entered. I'd be like, has anybody mapped your stuff? Have you like looked at this? No. Would you do that? Yeah. I'm happy to do it for you for free. I'll do it for free. I don't even care. Cause I love you. and I'm going to give you help. And guess what I would uncover? Like oh, gold. Yeah. And that's how we grew our asset base so fast on the AUM side. So, so I obviously for for folks that use Asset Map, they're you know need to hear the creation story, but they're familiar with it. But I know a lot of advisors are just they've only lived in financial planning software. They they they've never done or, or seen Asset Map. So I know the whole point is it's literally a visualization, and we're on an audio podcast here. But like, can you? <laughs> Can you try to paint a picture a little just like for someone who has never, never seen this, never seen what the company offers? Like, what is an asset map? What is an asset map? A picture is worth a thousand words. (laughs) So we're going to have to do the thousand word version. Do you have have enough time for this? Um, Okay. So, and by the way, it didn't start out this way. Right, we, right. we learned over the years that what mattered to me as an advisor didn't matter to the client. And so we had to negotiate and cut and cut and cut and cut until it was whittled down to something that made me feel, at least in the early days, it was about me, but not anymore, that I, I felt still allowed me to have technical preeminence and didn't go across the line of simplistic, right? Because that's a really important aspect for most of us that are technical. We we don't want to look like Fisher Price advisors, okay? So we value and appreciate the fact that we have technical preeminence. And I know that you would, you would appreciate mm-hmm. that too, because uh, you've spent a lot of time building that. Yep. Um, so there is a, and we, and we it's interesting because you, you know, there have been several companies that have just tried to knock off versions of asset maps and, and I'm chuckling to myself because I'm like, we tested that. We know that that's going to have a problem, but I'm not telling you what it is, just so you know, I'm not going to tell you. But there's a, there is a component, what I call simple rich, simple enough for me to have a high level conversation rich enough for me to go just deep enough to uncover whether we should explore something. Here's what I mean. There's a five components of the asset map that are critical. Number one, who is most important in your family and your financial household? We think household because you make decisions as a household. That's typically, what is it? It's a her and him typically, but we've enabled the system to be full agnostic to all gender and all relationships, modern relationships today. Typically, it's a generation below you. Sometimes it's a generation above you if you're taking care of mom and dad or mom-in-law. Uh, typically, that include people you have financial dependencies on, like business partners, if you own companies together or if you own assets together. And then it's the legal entities, you know, charitable or corporate or LLC, or whatever, that you control or have an interest within. That's your financial household. That lives at the top. They need to be top of mind because they are the why you're doing pretty much all this complexity. I need to make sure that we always talk about them and keep them top of mind. It is a customer-centric view. So the people are in the center or the household, depending upon what view you're looking at. Income sources by by what is it? Where is it? You know, who's who's it flowing to? 
that I control both today and in the future. So that means not just my current compensation, but I want a physical representation of assets or sorry, income sources you're going to get in the future. Things that you're obvious like social security, pension, uh, maybe even deferred comp, maybe even earnouts, maybe a distribution from the business sale. Maybe it's also uh, an annuity, I don't know, or, or a guaranteed minimum income benefit. Yes, that can live on an asset map. It never lives anywhere because it's not real today. Um, then followed by assets that, uh, that follow the branch of ownership, organized by tax structure, color-coded so that you know what's qualified, what's not. We can handle all kinds of different kinds of assets from your traditional stuff to your non-marketable alts, crypto, multi-currencies, multiple languages, assets and liabilities in the center, and lastly, insurance policies. So what I just told you, if you kind of didn't follow that, is imagine a family tree smashed into an income statement on top of a balance sheet mapped with a policy summary on top. Okay, so all of the financial junk that we have accumulated, but structured by ownership and colored by tax regime. Okay, that makes sense so far? Yeah, yeah. So I'm-, sort of? I'm Yeah, so, uh, so the who- the income sources, the assets and liabilities, and a summary of insurance policies. Yeah. Life, disability, long-term care, property, casualty, uh, and we can't handle PNC. So so you can, any funny, you know, here's the funny thing. So households today, the average number of boxes representing financial instruments is 25 per household. That's how much we're all literally organizing. If you're in a, we'll call it a run-of-the-mill uh, mass, I would say mass affluent with a net worth of, of let's say a uh, million two. That's, that's our average of households that are in ASMAP. Not, it's a lot of people think that we're for, for rank and file or it's, it's interesting to see how diverse the households are. There are some, obviously some mega wealthy families in there, but um, 25 instruments, that's a lot of decisions. Most of them are haphazard. We inherited them or someone sold them to us. I, you know, no one's inspected it. And so the the essence from the ASMAP then is you're you're trying to put all this on on one page on one visualization because I just I mean what you describe like I'm sure there are a lot of advisors who are like yeah like I have a section in my financial plan where like we list the people and then like I've got a thing that talks about their income sources and then of course I I talk about their their uh, their net worth and have like a, a summary of their net worth and we we've got mm-hmm. a section an insurance section in our financial plan. Uh, that that talks about their insurance coverage. The 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 essence here is, but you're literally trying to do this in a one page visualization. Yeah, and it rotates for to optimize for page or screen, so it it kind of it works with you know we used to work in print forever. So the funny thing is, we would go to most meetings, we would have our deep planning tools, and and that's an important question, Michael. You didn't ask, which is. Which is what's the relationship here to my typical financial planning tools? You know, Joel Bruckenstein did a survey, I guess, two years ago, and he said, "How many uh, asset map users are using a financial planning tool in addition?" Which was, you know, the typical big three, and it was seventy percent. So they're not using. We don't find that most as, uh, asset map users are using asset map in absentia of financial planning. They're using it as a collaborative tool. The most recent enterprise. Shared with us that they they have a they offer up a, a traditional planning tool and asset map. The difference is they're getting adoption of asset map three to one. Why is that? Because they're finding that most most advisors will stay high level early now and just gather the information and then decide whether they need to go to full financial planning, or whether they can just do triage 
and solve the problem right right from AssetMap because we do have rudimentary financial planning embedded now in AssetMap for in 30 seconds I could do a retirement analysis. I think that that's pretty much table stakes these days. Um, right. So just the quick and dirty, like, are you you know, are you anywhere in the reasonable neighborhood of being yeah. on track or not? Like, if it's yes, we're done. If it's no, sure, I can do a really detailed analysis of exactly how much you need to save to get on track. But the more practical conversation is, do you have anything more you could save than what you do today? Yes or no? If it's no, yeah. we have to solve that. If it's yes, like, it's going to be what it is. Maybe we can work on changes to make to help you save more in the future. Like, I don't actually really need to know exactly how much more I need to save here if I'm on track, mm. if I'm off track. All we really have to figure out is, can I save more? And if not, what am I going to start doing to save more? And then later we can come back to, okay, now that you're saving more, exactly how much do we need and is it enough? If I'm making a 30-year retirement plan projection, and I, the bottom line, a client wants to know effectively how much they need to save every month because they need to get into an actionable goal. And we tell them, your financial planning tool that's incredibly robust tells them that they need to save $3,422 a month right now, based upon our assumptions of all those assumptions that go into, which we all know are based upon a lot of assumptions on assumptions. Okay. But yep. okay, fine. Precision is what it is. But I can basically tell them in 30 seconds that they need to save $3,500 a month. Is there really... Is there really a difference in the quality of the advice to take for action to take now? If with speed I can get them to say yes, okay, let's go find thirty five hundred dollars a month, versus going through a full process that's going to take me probably a longer than thirty seconds <laughs> yeah. to get to an analysis. I think fundamentally, and I really want your opinion on this, we may be overcalculating. And losing people along the journey. And I think that's been what we've we've taken a stand on it at ASIMAP, which is I think direction is better than precision on a 30-year journey. Yeah, I like I I like I yes, I agree with like a little bit of an of an asterisk. Like I agree, yeah, I do agree it. principally, like direction is direction is the is the most crucial piece here. And like you know, if I can if I can deeply calculate three thousand four hundred twenty two dollars a month, or I can quickly mm -hmm. calculate thirty five hundred a month, like, are we there enough with thirty five hundred a month? Like, I would say yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, goodness, my thirty year projections are not re like remotely fine tuned enough to be like within a two percent of savings goal, right? Like three four two two versus three five hundred. Yeah. Like, we're within a percent or two of your of your savings number. Like, you know, I can I can literally adjust that. Uh, on your retirement goal by what happened in the market on Tuesday. The caveat to me beyond just directionality, like I do need to be, I do need to have confidence I've gotten to the right neighborhood. And there, and there's some okay. level of specificity around that that's you know, re relative to clients' dollars and net worth in the first place. I do need to get to the right neighborhood mm -hmm. and I need to get to the right neighborhood and both have confidence as the advisor and be able to give confidence to my client that we're close and that we're in the right neighborhood and that we're not so wildly off that I'm going to come back in, in, in a while and just say like, 
yeah, we were sort of directionally right because I was pointing us west, but it turns out like we were trying to get to Seattle and we just hit Saskatchewan. Like, <laughs> I write well, like I can't time we are in Saskatchewan with true, uh, <laughs> right? So like, I, there's not just a direction thing. Like, there's some calibration effect that that goes mm-hmm. into that as well. The missing output to me is a sensitivity analysis. Yes, that says like. Here's the parts of your just even I think here's the parts of your plan that matters. Some playing software tools do some pieces of this, or there's some sliders I can play with that gets me a little bit close. But I I don't feel like I've seen anybody give me the good sensitivity analysis that that just shows some like common size thing for a client. Like here's how much your outcomes change if you. Uh, dial your spending up and down by 10%. Here's how much your outcomes change if you dial your equity exposure up and down by 10%. Here's how much your outcomes change if you dial your uh, social security start date up and down by one year. Here's the thing. I've been around long enough, you know, God willing to know that all of the plans that I have made, you know, there's, there's, there's themes or gist that, that have worked out. Some I kind of prepped and some life gave me some interesting changes as we have all can relate. Okay. And it was just this phrase that, you know, People make plans and God laughs, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what's important about that in planning is the following. Every single financial plan that I have done, you can go back to it. I spent hours like you did. From the time that I started as a financial planner in 2000 till I would say even today, none of them played out the way that I projected. Them. Right. I reprojected them every single year. Mm-hmm. None of them played out. The amount of money that I assumed was going to come <laughs> from a certain account based upon the Monte Carlo bullshit has not actually happened. I can tell you with relative confidence that 100% of my financial plans did not play out the way that I mm-hmm. sold it. What I did get from them and what you said is I got confidence and that confidence parlayed into the helping the client make a decision. And it's that behavioral action that Dan Crosby talks about that actually is the real crux of helping people. People don't lose weight, get fit just by going crazy and doing this fantastic diet analysis. They get fit from taking a step by doing a push-up. And I found pretty consistently that the way to help people actually is for me to have confidence that they should take action and that the action they're taking serves them. Is it not based? I think that we've gotten into a habit of creating a false sense of security based upon the depth of our analysis that we then parlay onto our client saying, this is why you should do this is because the analysis is robust and I stand behind it, even though we know well full that the entire analysis is based upon assumptions that we have no way to control. And here's my best example to you. If you're a business owner, as you and I are, you and I are entrepreneurs, I'd like you to give me a pro forma. You can go two, three, four years out. You push 10 years on a pro forma and as an investor, I'm laughing at you. Okay. I'm laughing. Okay. I'll I'll barely, I'll barely do a three year. I'll like, I'll do a three. I don't even look at the five year. I'm like, that's funny. A hockey stick. What? (laughs) I'm like, oh, hi, you're still at the puck. Okay. I don't, I don't think that that's reasonable as an investor in businesses for us to say pro formas. And if businesses with the tools and techniques and knowledge and B- MBAs can't even figure that out, how in God's name are we actually doing this on a 30, 40 government, five, 50 year projection of what's actually going to happen in the future? And I think, I think we have done a great job of communicating to the advisor space and advisor space, as you call it, that that the analysis is critical to build the confidence that you're approaching this from a thoughtful, logical, mm-hmm. and really defensible yep. part of the business, right? Best interest, defensible. I did this analysis. I see. I should, 
That's why you need this annuity. That's why this investment makes sense. That's why this insurance is here. But I don't know at the end of the day whether that is really serving the end consumer. I think that we need to do a better job doing financial triage. It's one of the reasons why we started this podcast talking about advice engagement and not financial planning. And don't get me wrong, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, throw junk on financial planning. I'm trying to challenge the status quo of what we've always thought we needed to do to get the outcome. I'm I'm challenging everybody to say, listen, we need to start at the basics. What matters to you? What are you doing? Does it serve you? And and how do we now make the next action, which is uh, do we go deep on analysis or do we just get some band-aids or do we just, you know, do some physical therapy or does this like full out surgery? And I think that's the key where as a result, it's a reason why financial planning is not getting to enough people. We need to figure out a way to engage around advice. I think it's an interesting framing to sort of characterize at like asset map and the experience of clients go through that advisors take them through as a like as a financial triage ex exercise. Like I, th- I think that's actually a yeah. a really good a really good framing around it to say like okay, is this a client that really needs the full the full bore analysis and complex uh, like the full bore analysis because of the complexity, right? Just there are some clients like there is so much tax and business and other stuff going on. Like okay, like I I really I really do need to pull out like the heavy duty uh uh analytical tools like just there are too many moving parts to handle with the simplified analysis and just there's too much risk that I'm I'm really not even going to be in the right neighborhood agreed but for some clients the reality is it's not actually that complex like we can get to the neighborhood pretty quickly and just the recommendations aren't that hard to fit to to figure out in the first place and then we have to balance that with I mean I've joked for this for a long time, like almost anybody that's been doing all this a long time has realized like, yeah, something like 80 or 90% of my client conversations, the deep, dirty truth is I can give you almost all of the client recommendations about 15 to 20 minutes into the conversation. I could write them on an index card and we'd be done. Amen. Uh, but, and like there's a, then the terror 20% is, well, what I think like the cool, awesome, super nerdy stuff where we can come up with super fancy uh, strategies and create a lot of value. But uh, uh, a lot of unique value, but like so much just there is kind of a bread and butter of planning, but with like the big, but, but I know that if I sat across the client and heard them for 20 minutes and wrote on an index card, what they need to do, it would probably be right. And they're not going to do it. Like they, they don't, <laughs> they don't feel heard and understood enough yet. Mm-hmm. If they just say it and I write out some things on an index card, like there, there has to be more engagement or more depth or more way to demonstrate that you've done enough analysis that it's credible and that they have confidence to take action because they feel like you've you've done the work to prove the the point. <laughs> so I have a question for you. This is I'm, I love that you said this. So what builds confidence and trust? Is it the robust analysis that the doctor takes two months to come back to me and said, here's what your MRI says, or the doctor who puts up an x-ray and says, let me educate you as to how your body works. The process of that trust, that interactiveness, what I call participation over presentation. It's like a, it's a thing I've like been stuck with. I'm talking to a lot of people. We've taken it too far, I believe, and of course, I'm being extreme here, but I would say we've pushed the pendulum 
more towards, let me present this, and you said theater, so I'm going to use it, this theatrical performance of my preeminence and build confidence around, wow, because I did that. I, you should have seen me. I, I had a, I, it was insane. Next, it's all about education and helping lift people's literacy today, I think, and proving that I have a valuable human aspect of this relationship that I really know what's going on in your life. And I proved it because I put it up on the screen in front of you and you can participate in it. And now it's yours. It's not mine to dole out every annual meeting. It's yours to participate and bring our minds to apply that. And that's when we, when you said, reiterated the triage concept, I very much think that the next evolution of the human deliver advice, not just financial planning, across profession, tax, legal, insurance, investment, banking, is going to be really about how you bring your human insight and experience to their life in real time, episodically. Some people will pay for you to be there all the time. A lot of people will say, I've got some issues. I want to see someone. I'm going to go see a specialist and they're going to want to bring you into this conversation. And I don't know that they're going to have the gumption or the interest in going through full financial planning the way we've typically delivered it. We need to be able to, boom, bring our bring our insight to their, their life in 15 minutes and say, okay, yes, you know what? You do need the MRI. You do need the surgery. I need to bring in my core team. Or you know what? You need some insurance and you need to start saving. Okay. Here's a great mutual fund. Let's go. Right? <laughs> like that, yeah. That, that's the difference, I think. And we could help a lot more people, I think, collectively, if we just get them engaged and start helping them become more literate. So with a lot of the industry buzz these days around one-page financial plans, which I feel like is another version of like, how do I, how do I boil more, more of this financial planning information and focus down to either a single page of delivery? I find more advisors in practice are one-page financial plans seem to be more of an ongoing review tool, the upfront plan usually still a little longer, or like I have a one-page financial plan and a 52-page uh, technical appendix. So like yeah. we've <laughs> we've we've shifted the presentation, like the the plan software output is still there. Uh, yeah, but but it's I am it. just wondering, like, how do you, because I mean, what you'll ultimately, I mean, the whole nature of just what you framed around the asset map is like, we're getting all this stuff onto one page so they can finally see this holistic view and where it's going. And then that facilitates great conversations because they want to fill in the map. And then you just start asking the obvious questions like, why do you have six different IRAs? How do you think about what Asimab's doing relative to mm -hmm. the sort of this like growth and movement towards one page financial plan deliverables? We're happy everybody finally showed up and figured it out. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. Someone asked me this the other day. And I mean, like, I is, to, to is Asset Map an alternative to a one-page financial plan? Is is Asset Map no. a one-page financial no, plan? No, I, I don't know anyone who's putting out a true one-page financial plan because that is that is like, okay, do you remember when there was the, um, what was it? It was the uh, six-minute ab workout, or I think it was six-minute abs, right? Everyone's like, six-minute abs, you could do it. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then there was a joke on television, but like, I'm going to come out with the four-minute abs. Uh -huh. like, no, you can't do four-minute abs. Like, now you're like pushing the limit. I've been been saying that. So everything in Asimap we designed to be a tear sheet. If it it has to live on one page, what I would say to you is that a three page plan is legit. A one page plan is a dashboard that leaves me always wanting more. When you look at a one page financial plan, I, what I'm seeing the guys do in financial planning is I I think it's it's definitely the right path, but its its utility in the field is is very hampered. Because guess what happens? I show somebody their one-page summary of dashboard of stuff, and inevitably they're like, 
uh, great. Well, what, what's the, what's, where is that again? Or where's the stuff? And I'm like, right. here we go. Let me bring out the appendix, the PDF <laughs> wasn't printed because I'm trying to save ink. Well, and yeah, so, but I wanted you to ask me about the appendix. I'm really proud of the 52 page well, there plan. You go. Okay. <laughs> that just showed you true colors, my friend. <laughs> I, I agree with you. We, we do love showing the work that we have done because we, we value it. The, the difference is very often we have to be honest with ourselves the clients love the creme brulee. They don't care about how you, you know, you know, steam the milk. That they're like, okay, I know you got the creme brulee. It's awesome. So the the point is, is is I think Asset Map has a couple of different components. I don't want to go too much into it, but Asset Map has the ability to create one page retirement plan, one page life analysis, one page long term care, etc., long term disability, or any other thing you can think of. One page on the output. So it has enough of the information so that I can be really dangerous with just that one page. But then asset map is one page and uh, signals is one page because the idea is tear sheet planning, not one page planning. Okay. We need the capacity to put in front of our clients what they need when they need it. Not, not basically try to now obfuscate it by saying, here's this dashboard full of charts and pie charts. And you're like, well, but what does it mean? And, and I think it's interesting. I think a couple of companies have done a really good job at this, at really pushing it. I mean, obviously what Carl's doing, I think is really, uh, I think, and of course, I think Elements is now in that advice engagement category. I think what they're doing is really interesting for kind of high level um, feedback on financial wellness. I think that's what they're really doing. Well, I think it's a really interesting frame, just as you said, like, you know, a three-page plan can be legit. A one-page plan is a dashboard, and like I mean, like it's good, like not not to knock dashboards. Dashboards are actually very helpful in a number of contexts. That's that's why I I feel like I see a lot of advice engagement getting picked up in a ongoing client service scenario, right? Because it's dashboards for client reviews. Whereas I mean, even like we've seen this in the you know the the tech studies that we do on the Kitsis platform as well mm-hmm. that like. Asset map tends to get used earlier in the process and often with mm-hmm. new clients, whereas a lot of the other advice engagement tools are getting used later in the process with with ongoing clients. And just it yeah. it helps crystallize for me like the, the the distinction that a lot of the one page plan tools are are dashboards in a positive way, but like our dashboards, whereas you're building something that looks more like tear sheet planning, like just can we get these conversations down to a one-page deliverable to facilitate this conversation. And so if there's a lot of planning areas, I am going to have multiple pages because I need the insurance page and the retirement page and the overall balance sheet net worth page. So I might have a couple of pages, but each page contains that conversation or facilitates that conversation well. I know I need to know in every single there's one consistency I found, Michael. In every annual review meeting, I need to validate that my knowledge matches the truth. And that's that's core fact finding. We've had that forever. And it engenders trust. It shows that we're actually paying attention to like what's going on in the changes in people's lives. And that's why we've put Asset Map as the forefront of every annual review meeting. Let's just make sure we're on the same page. I took this liberty of creating this visualization for you. Maybe you yeah. saw it, maybe you didn't. Here's your life as I understand it. Are these people still relevant? What's going on with Nana? How's this going? You still have these income sources? What about these IRAs? Are they still valid? Are the 401k? Did you rebalance it? Did you change the beneficiary? What's going on? And all of a sudden now, I've got them engaged in a visual agenda. And so what you're going to actually see, and I'll give you a bit of a, a kind of taste of reveal. 
asset map is actually, we're finding it's becoming a single pane of glass for many advisors. They just, they just have that on the screen the entire time in a, in a screen share. They don't, if they need to flip to Morningstar, they will. If they need to go to eMoney, they will. So we're basically embedding a lot of these tools right within asset map. The ability to click on any box and see performance from Orion right now, or go to file storage with a bunch of the file storage companies, or go to CRM and start making changes right inside of asset map. That's what you can do today. So the, even though you're right, it is used very often as a, we'll call it financial screening triage tool. We've come up with some interesting names to, to figure out, is this what should I do with this household? Should I go deep on planning or should I just go triage? Uh, or just say this is not the right fit, or maybe give it to my my junior or bring in my A team. Those are decisions that we need to make early on and proving that we know the client is a great way to start there. So yes, Asimap's fantastic in the front end prospect kind of validation. So but I think you're gonna see it on very heavily on the on the back end uh engagement. So uh uh so for folks that are listening, we'll have a link out for Asimap in, in show notes if people want to take a look. But Adam, are we able to get, I don't know, like a a, a sample like asset map one pager that just that we can post to show notes as well for people that yeah, sure. just are listening and want to want to see you like want to like check it out yeah yeah of course yeah we'll get it too. okay so so for folks who are listening this is episode 336 336 so if you go to kitsis.com slash 336 uh just we'll have a link in the show notes for like a a, a sample version of the uh, uh of an a, of an asset map if you want to see it and then obviously links out to uh to the website if you want to if you want to dig in further. Very cool. So so Adam so I guess as I'm wondering like so as you've gone this journey you, know, you the I guess overgeneralizing a little kind of like the the first 10 years of the career were on the advisory side the past 10 years of the career tilted more towards the uh the 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 tech company side and and building asset map out into a uh a a tech business unto itself. So I I I guess the next thing I'm wondering like what just what surprised you the most about like actually building and turning this into a, a tech business beyond just a thing that I do for my clients that's working well for me and my clients? You know, it's funny. I didn't, I wasn't convinced it was going to be a business beyond my own best practice early on, but I'll, I'll shorten that by saying I knew when we had seen other advisors within our organization having similar results, that kind of gave me the validation. I was always scared, Michael. I didn't want to take money from anyone else. I only wanted to risk my own money. I, you know, I was an investment advisor for many years. I was didn't want the black mark on my, you know, if it didn't work out. So I, I, you know, made sacrifices at my family level. And I think that was a big insight from uh, you know, going from doing really well as an advisor to saying, hey, let's take something great. And walk away from it. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, it was an, it's an awesome business. I love uh, what we do. And today I actually think of myself as more a, a coach to other advisors and that's been incredibly fulfilling. So in a sense, it's really given me a lot of ways to make an impact on this community in some small way. So it's been incredibly fulfilling. Um, I, I think every company or every advisor, once you figure out some kind of scalable process, that's got utility, you know, I, I think you can experiment more than any. As you know, you've created several businesses, some of which we have relationship with now. And I would say the real key to it, ultimately, where I had failures and where I've had successes is all about the people. Did I put the right people in the right roles and give them authority? Or did I try to micromanage and then try to you know save money and not put in experts? I learned a lot. Uh, and I wouldn't say it was all positive. Uh, but I think those are really important aspects looking back. 
to that journey is just basically make sure you're with the right people. And if I didn't have the mentors that I've had that were supportive of this journey, uh, it wouldn't have happened. So it's a huge testament to the people that you surround yourself with. So what was the, what was the low point along the way? What was the low point in that 25 year journey? Yeah. Gosh, I don't, I don't think that way, man. I did tell you that I went to Tony Robbins, right? Yeah. Um, I left that story out. Um, what was the low point? That's a good question. Um, I don't, you know, I'm having a hard time, Michael, because I, uh, if you know me, uh, as you're probably getting to know me, I'm, um, I realize I can't control the past and I don't stay there at all. Um, I'm really, really in the present and I tend to be gratitude, you know, gratitude first. I did learn that a long time ago. If you want to be happy, just be grateful. Um, and so I don't really see, sounds kind of hokey, but I, I don't, I really don't get stuck on the downs. They've all contributed to where we are today and you choose but, to either. Well, yeah, uh, I, I, I get know. that we don't necessarily regret them. I find for like folks with an entrepreneurial journey mm. in particular, like we tend not to regret even the challenges and failures that, that, yeah. that came. It's like they're, they're all growth opportunity. Like I am so much better at blank now because I did this and it went horribly. And now I've learned not to do that again. Uh, so it's like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily wondering like, what would you change? But just like, mm. where did it get hard and stressful? Like, where did you smack into some of those walls? The, well, you know, where did those wonderful, glorious growth opportunities actually kick in? You know what? The first thing that just came to my mind, I'll just go with it. I, I remember bringing Asset Map to the community of financial tech and really feeling out of the cool kid group. Mm -hmm. it, it was like high school all over again. And I did realize that in order for me to be deemed credible, I was going to have to really, really commit to being in this space and and helping and delivering value and so forth because i think a lot of people looked at asset map as oh that'll never work you know so i did go through that mm. uh, of course i had enough evidence to say okay that's fine that's your opinion but I, I know it works it's not maybe not for you that's okay um and i have people all over the world using asset map now it's crazy and i i didn't think that big originally um so i think the first thing was probably self-doubt that was those were the low times when i'm like Oh crap, I just put my whole family's household net worth on the line and this might not work and people don't like me and they're not returning my calls and and I'm like the new kid on the block and whatever. Like I have no credibility. I know I mean I would my own capital and it was like so I I think there was probably and now you're making me go there. There were moments when I I thought I'm not what am I doing? I'm not this is dumb. This is, this is crazy. I'm literally risking my whole family's financial future when I had it so great. Um, and, this, and, yeah, so and all because, and all because you were even more concerned about taking money from others and then risking, yeah. risking, have the fail, having that failure on you, like on the record, as it were, I'm an advisor, yeah. but I started a company and lost a bunch of people's money. That doesn't, yeah. you know what the irony is as a financial planner in the blood, I needed a lot of validation to feel confidence. I needed to do that analysis for years and feedback and feedback and consistent and consistencies before I had the ability to, I think, jump. I mean, you guys, you know, we just raised a significant amount of capital of growth equity uh, for Asset Map to really expand. And um, yeah, it took a lot to get to that place. And I think, I think if I didn't have the career and backing and ability to spend a lot less than 
I think a lot of my peers uh, and live meagerly, I, I think I probably couldn't have afforded to do that. And, and that was, uh, you know, hopefully there's some lessons in there that people will take is, you know, don't live behind your means, um, even when you can. So what advice would you give to other advisors that are thinking about this journey or like I've, I've made a thing for my <laughs> practice. I'm wondering if other advisors would, would buy it as well. Like I'm, you know, I think I might have a software thing here. I, you know how many calls I get on that now? I, it used to be fun and cute. Now it's like a little bit annoying. I'll be honest. I'm saying that to you because so many people, everybody has got a great idea and I, I believe you, I believe that you've got a great idea, but if you see something and you know that it's got legs and you can put together capital, create an MVP and then, and then prove it. I think the better opportunity these days, Michael, is to go to, if you've got something really innovative for a problem that's real and has a lot of, um, I think that you could probably get companies like ours to license it and, uh, and build it much faster in a way that's going to be secure in this, in this era of kind of privacy and security that's going, it's going to get even more intense. Um, I think it's, it's a huge lift. Uh, as much as people think it's easy to develop today, hey, I can make an app for 50 grand or for five grand. I can hire some kid down the street. I think you're going to see the scrutiny level go, um, I think, pretty intense. And that's not going to be a game for for small players. Be um, because distribution and is hard and just meeting cybersecurity requirements is not trivial if you're a startup e-tech firm, but you're touching financial services and data. I, I just, I think that this, I think the cybersecurity is, is going to, the intensity and the requirements is going to double. And if you've gone through any kind of enterprise level stuff, we've gone through now 35 broker dealers, they're full InfoSec. It could take six months to a year. You have to have the team and the staff to answer 500 questions and pull off a InfoSec and actually follow policies and procedures. I mean, it, yeah. it's way deeper than I thought. I was like, I'm making an app, right? I'm just making an app. Uh -huh. So it's not, okay, spending yep. millions of dollars on this kind of stuff. And if you want to be credible in the space, I think there are going to be table stakes going forward. And so that's why I'm saying it's probably better. I think you're going to see a continued consolidation in our industry, even from us players that would be considered smaller because, you know, the innovation, I think there's a lot of innovation everywhere, but bringing it to market is a whole nother story. So, but look, get, get mentorship, get people. A lot of financial advisors have access to capital. So I think you could take a shot, but here's the thing I'm telling people recognize that this is a lifestyle decision. If you're going to go this path and say, mm. I'm really going to make it work, make sure your family's on board, make sure your partners are on board, make sure your clients are on board because you're going to need them to support you both financially and emotionally when you go through this process. Cause it's more than an investment in just a cool new app. There's it's a, it's a project, it's a lifestyle. And I, and I think I went from working 20 hours a week to 80 for the past 10 years. Thank goodness. I love work, but you know, that's, that's a choice. Make sure that you're paying attention to that. So any advice you would give just younger and newer advisors coming into the industry today and getting started? You want more advice? That's a lot of advice, Michael. Okay. Yes. Okay. Gosh, starting out advisors. I think it's, it's all about team fit. I don't think in the early days you're going to know what you don't know. And so the key is to do what you and I think did, which is to commit to getting educated and to learning and to not and to not just taking everything for granted what you're told be committed to being a student of this business get educated someone told me really early on in my career they said don't do what most advisors do they get the CFP for the credentials 
get the CFP, go to the courses, go to American college, go to where you were going to go and actually learn in a way that you could actually teach your clients. And that was a, that was a critical mm. aspect of guidance. I heard early on from a industry, just giant, um, who had enough money to drive around a Maybach, but drove a Prius and he did it because he understood the fundamentals of our business. And I, I think that was a, that was a, that was a great lesson. I, I'd be happy to pay that forward and share that with advisors. So as, as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success and just one of the things we've mm. always observed is just that word success mm. means very, very different things to different people. And so you've, you had a wonderful, uh, uh, career arc on the advisor side. You're, you've now mm. had a successful, uh, career in building asset map as well. I know both of those are actually still, still firing and growing for you. So the, the businesses are, are all in a wonderful place. Yeah. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Gosh, for myself, I get up every morning. Um, how do I define success? I, I definitely, uh, you know, I, the innuendo there is that it is different for all of us. And I have evolved this as I've gotten older. Um, there's no question about it. I really think if you can get to a success for me, is to make an impact on the planet. Um, I've gotten bigger visions and bigger goals as I've kind of gone along and said, boy, that's possible, that's possible. And, I, and I've and i been forced to think, I think more recently, given certain health and family awareness is not for me personally, but for just being exposed to it, that that time matters. And so success is having is having meaningful time. Um, and And so for whatever we're all doing, I think if we can spend more time doing the stuff that matters, whether it's family or fun or growing or contributing, that's how we get fulfilled. And that's my measure of success. And it's something that I've been really trying to endear to the employees of both firms is that we care about if family's your thing, then family's first and we're second. And and how do you build a culture around that? And it's not been easy, but but I think it's aspirationally something that we can all get behind. And that's that's the whole thing. I think if you could find your purpose uh, for that meaningful time, that's the bl- that's the biggest blessing, and that's success in my mind. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Adam, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're the man, Liz. I thank you so much for having us and for everything you're doing for the community. So we we thank you for the help you offer to so many of us without asking for anything in response. So just to kind of cap that off, I want to make sure that you that we give a shout out to you because. Uh, you're really just a you know awesome leader in the industry, and I want to thank you. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.